Hey, if you got a Bible, grab it. We're continuing in our teaching series in the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. So if you're less familiar with the Bible, just go to the front, get through Genesis, and then, and then we'll get to Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 32 today. We've been in a long series in Exodus, and I'll give a brief summary of kind of where we're at in just a moment, but I want to start by just kind of tapping into probably a shared experience that we've all had at some point in our life, uh, and that's when um, two things are happening at the same moment. One is you are clearly loving someone in your life, a friend, a spouse, a family member, and so you're planning something for them, right? Like you got like maybe it's like a surprise party, and you're like really thinking about them, um, but you don't want to tell them what you're doing because you're really excited to surprise them. Um, at the at the same moment, they're growing more and more bitter <laughs> against you because they think like you forgot about my birthday, <laughs> like you haven't said anything. Have you had this experience? And so, like, actually, this really beautiful thing of like great consideration and love is owning one person's heart, and the other person is sort of getting a bit grumpy and beginning to distance themselves because they think you've forgotten. I remember um, in my own life, I like, I like fell in love with my wife, Allie, like super early on. And so it was like only like three months into dating and I was like ready to propose. And we were actually going to Germany because her younger sister was playing professional soccer in Germany. And like I was conspiring with her younger sister to plan a proposal in some super romantic space, you know, with shru- uh, you know, strudel everywhere, and it was just going to be so good. And then, like, Allie started dropping these hints, not so subtle, and I was almost, like, sure that her sister had, like, told her, because she'd say things like, you know, I just believe in dating people through all the holidays. And I was like, hmm, do you know what I'm about to do here? And so I had, like, gone ring shopping, and I had planned this whole thing out in the last minute. I said, I can't, I can't do it. I don't think she's ready. So we go to Germany. We're driving from castle to castle doing what you do when you, you, as a tourist in Germany. And um, we're on the road in our little German uh, rental car. And you can just tell she's just sort of kind of getting worked up. And you're like, I was like, oh, so what's this weird vibe in the room, you know? And, and all of a sudden she turns to me and she says, who am I to you? Is this going anywhere? <laughs> and, I, and I look at her. I said, excuse me. For one, I'm in Germany with you. For, uh, the second thing is, you're the one that said date him through the holidays. And so what I do is I grab my wallet and I pull a business card out of my wallet and I hand it to her. Do you know what this business card was? The jeweler that I had been working with. <laughs> And she looks at it, and she goes, yes, I still believe in dating through the holidays. <laughs> so, she, so she knew that I was serious about her, but now we were actually aligned. And today we get to actually see a similar story. Remember last week, Ben talked about how God was giving Moses. Moses is up on the mountain. So, so just back up a sec. The people of Israel, God's people... Abraham's descendants, like you read about in the book of Genesis, have been enslaved in Egypt for the last 400 or so years. And God says, I want to rescue my people. I'm going to do it through Moses the prophet. 
And you can, you can go back and learn all, this is one of my favorite series, because to understand Exodus helps you understand the whole Bible. Hopefully you're experiencing that if you've been tracking with us. Um, and Moses is strangely raised, even though he's a Hebrew, an Israelite raised in Pharaoh's household, and then he ends up murdering a man, and so he flees into the wilderness, and he meets the burning bush, and God calls him and says, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I'm going to give you the strength and the power to lead the people out. And so he does, and God works miraculously uh, to, to, to free the people of Israel, and they cross the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness. They've come to Mount Sinai, and God uh, has called them to these Ten Commandments. This is how I want you to set up your community. And so, and then God says, Moses, come up to the mountain. I'm going to give you even more instruction about how, and, and, and Moses, so Moses goes up. Now, you have to remember, the people don't know exactly what God's telling Moses up on the mountain, but what Ben talked about last week is God is giving the, them the blueprints, the instructions for building God's own tent in the middle of the encampment, because they're all camping in, in long-term tents. And God says, I want to have a tent with you. I want to come and dwell with you. And this is how to make my tent. I mean, just a beautiful, amazing idea that God doesn't want to stay distant and far, but he wants to come near and live amongst his people. And, and Moses is receiving this. He's receiving this information. And at the same time, the people of Israel are saying, where did Moses go? He's been gone. We don't know how many weeks into his his disappearance up into the, the, the fog and the cloud of the mountain, that this happened, but they begin to wonder, will he ever come back? We don't know what happened to him. We don't know what God's telling him right now. And so the people get restless, and they go to, to Moses' brother Aaron, who's sort of like second in command of this wandering people, and they say, Aaron, we want you to now lead us. We don't know where Moses has gone. We want you to lead us. Make for us an idol, a golden calf, which have been very similar to the things that they experienced in their time in Egypt, worshiping a physical representation of a god. And so, so Aaron gives in. He, he, it seems like he's probably pressured into it. Maybe even his life is being threatened. So he gives in and he collects jewelry from the people and he, and he crafts this wooden calf and then he overlays it with gold and he, and he builds an altar where they can make sacrifices, and they, he puts the calf there, and the people worship the golden calf. And if you've been with us, they're breaking very directly the second commandment, which is make no idols, because God says, you cannot make anything that represents me. No created thing can represent the creator. And so to make a golden calf is to lie about me. And yet, you know, 30 20, 30 days after they had heard God speak out of the mountain. This very command, they're already asking Aaron to help them break that command. And Aaron does it, and they begin to worship. And Aaron says, I'll make a festival for you. And so they eat, and they drink, and they, and they bring worship, worship or uh, sacrifices, offerings, and they burn them to this golden calf, and they sing, and they dance. And God and Moses hear this, and God sends Moses back down the mountain. He's carrying the two tablets that have inscribed on them, by God, the law. And Moses comes down and he sees what happens. And he, th he throws the tablets on the ground and they break, representing the breaking of the covenant with God. 
And Moses says, what have you done? And then there's some consequences. And some people die. And God gets angry. And he says, I don't want anything to do with this people, Moses. I want to start again with you, Moses. And Moses says, God, don't give up on us. Don't give up on, these are your people. Don't give up on me. And God relents, but there's still consequence. So that's the story we're going to look at today. We'll actually read this a little bit closer. I just wanted to give you the overview. And so what I hope to do, there's a lot to do. This is a, like Exodus has been, there's so much in these books that then opens up the whole Bible for us. So we, we've had to, you know, we preached some long sermons trying to get into the teeth of this because you've got to understand this stuff. So today we're going to try to do a few things. We're going to try to ask why the world is full of both good and evil. Big idea, big topic. We're going to ask why there's so many religions in this world. We're going to try to see through this text why idolatry happens in every single human life under the sun. And we're going to say, what happens when humans rebel against God? Including trying to understand God's anger. And then finally, we're going to ask, how can we avoid this slip into idolatry as we ourselves, as the people of God, wait for someone to return? And that someone is Jesus. Come thou long-expected Jesus. How do, how do we not slip into the same very human idolatry that always happens? So that's what we're going to, we're going to try to do all that today. See how far we get. <laughs> but I want to start with just highlighting this very unique, simultaneous, parallel storylines that are happening. Right? We have Moses on the mountaintop literally speaking with the creator, all-powerful, omniscient God of the universe, face-to-face, talking with God. Amazing that human beings have the capacity to interact with their creator. And at the same time, this restless, bitter um, idolatry that seeks to rebel and, and not wait for God. So it's, this, it's this, this, the nature of the world, this good and evil happening in such close proximity the human beauty that comes out of God speaking to humanity, but then also human depravity seeking to, to move back to the base ways that we once lived. How, how are these things happening at the same place in the same time? So we have human greatness and human misery. Life like it's never been before in the presence of God since the garden and death and disease as we'll see comes with it. How can these two things coexist? Well, if some of you have been to our newcomers class where I share um, a little diagram, and the diagram sort of three layers, one, two, three, and the upper layer is, um, sort of represents heaven, which is God's presence, which is everything that is good and beautiful, joy, peace, rest, perfect harmony, unity, all, all these things that we, we long for and we crave, and that can be represented as light. On, on the bottom, we have the opposite, or anti-heaven, 
which, which the Bible, you've heard the term hell. That's the absence of God's presence. That's like things that imitate goodness and beauty, but aren't truly in their essence good and beautiful. That's where covetous lives, always looking at somebody else's stuff and wanting that rather than the good gifts God's given you. This is where anxiety and restlessness and bitterness and injustice live. This could be represented as darkness. And then you've got the middle. And I, I, in the diagram, I talk about this as the forgotten middle. This is the land we live in now. And the, the, you, you could think about um, the top and the bottom. And, and the top, which is God's goodness, is so much weightier and heavier that it wants to press down and eradicate darkness. But the cross of Christ stands in the middle and holds these two at bay. Why? So that, God says, many might come to hear of my goodness, my, my good news, what I've done in Jesus, and might repent from idolatry, from covetous, from all the, the, the things of darkness, and turn to the light. So I'm going to hold that open. You can just picture like a cross holding these two jaws clenched, wanting to smash. And Christ holds it open so that many might come. Second Peter says, many might come. God's patient so that many might come and turn to him. So it's, this middle has this mixture because right now, the way things are, there's, it's, it's porous between heaven and even anti-heaven. So light can filter through. So we experience the light of heaven even now. We call that heaven on earth. But also darkness seeps through. It's porous. And so God allows darkness in this middle. He acts towards both in the same way. And so what we have in this moment is Moses literally transcending the upper line and experiencing heaven on earth. Being in the presence of God, talking with God. And Ryan will talk about this next week, like literally his face would shine when he would come down because he's been in the glory of God. So he's like, tra he's tra traversing that boundary, that borderline, and experiencing heaven. Well, in the same way, while he's doing that, the people waiting for him are crossing the other line, and they're dipping down into idolatry and worshiping cre creation rather than the creator. They're experiencing a bit of hell on earth. So these things are happening at the same time. And, and why do I spend time bringing this up? These things are happening in the same geographical coordinates at the same time. And isn't that how we all experience life? Where we see the beauty of the world and the brokenness of the world in the same place, in the same time. We see it in ourselves, this beauty and brokenness happening, warring against each other. It's like, why is that? How is that? And this is why I love the Bible. It helps us to see the reality that we live in so that we're, we can try to understand what's going on here, that God allows good and evil to commingle in this time that many might turn from darkness and move towards light, that they might turn from worshiping the wrong thing to worshiping Jesus. So it's actually God's loving kindness that allows this forgotten middle to exist. And we see it happening right here. And God's very intimately involved in both Moses experiencing heaven at the same time 
It's a half a mile away, people rejecting God. So we live in this simultaneous, and, and just this week, I was just thinking about that. So look, look, look here. Um, we see that. Let's start reading now in chapter 31, the very last verse, verse 18 says this. And he, that's God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. <laughs> Unbelievable. And look at the very next verse. These things are happening chronologically at the exact same time. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together, and actually a good translation would be gathered themselves against Aaron, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, what has become of him? He's talking to God. But they just can't wait. They just can't be patient. And in many ways, it's understandable. So the Bible helps me. Maybe it helps you see how this happens in our own soul. We've heard from God, yet we can't wait for him to speak again, to act again. We become restless, and so we want to turn to something else, which is idolatry. So two more questions that this text helps us answer. Let's read uh, chapter 32, verses 2 to 6. So they said, we don't know where Moses has gone. Do something for us. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, quote, these are, the people are saying this, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before the golden calf, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. See the devotion? They got up early. They didn't miss out. And they offered burnt offerings. They're sacrificing to this calf. They brought peace offerings. And the people sat to eat and drink. And they rose up to play. To celebrate. This helps me answer why there are so many religions in the world. How is that, Dave? Well, the people sense that something's missing in their life, that there's some action that they need to take to some deity that they're not sure how to fully understand and approximate, and so they seek to do something. So look what Aaron does. He makes an idol. Now, if you, if you read... Last week, or you were here last week, what is God simultaneously giving to Aaron? Directions to make a wood, acacia wood box in which the tablets will sit in, which will sit in the Holy of Holies, and to overlay it with gold. And that Ark of the Covenant, as it's called, will be taken before the people of Israel. Why is that so important? They never heard about it yet. But it's exactly what they want. 
They just do it the wrong way. God says, you can't, no animal represents me. But I'm going to give you a physical representation of my presence, the Ark of the Covenant, that's like a throne. It's like a seat that you can take before you. Exactly what they wanted. They didn't want a bad thing necessarily. They were just using the wrong methods, Egyptian ideas, and placing them into this thing that God simultaneously was telling Moses to do. You see that? So they're close, but they just can't wait for God to reveal. So they do it themselves. What's the next thing? He builds an altar. Guess what God's just told Moses on the mountain? Of course, they don't know about it yet because they're happening simultaneously, but God tells Moses how to build the altar and how to do burnt offerings and peace offerings. They just had to wait a little bit longer for God to reveal his desire. So their desire is not totally off, but it's their inability to wait upon the Lord. Then what does Aaron do? He says, I'm going to plan a festival. What is happening exactly at the same moment on the mountain? God is giving Moses direction for the festivals that they should produce as a people to worship him. But Aaron says, people want the festival. It's actually not a bad desire. But they do it the wrong way because they can't wait. And then finally, as I said, the people literally give offering and sacrifice for the worship of the golden calf. And Moses is receiving direction for how to do offering and sacrifice at the same moment. But he's receiving it from God, and they're making it up based on their past experience, what they think would be best, because they can't wait. So why are there so many religions in the world? Because people desire, they realize there's something to atone for. There's something out there to offer sacrifice to the people come up with their own plans. By the grace of God, he's saying to his disciples, take my direction, my prescription to the ends of the earth so that everybody knows how to worship me, the one true God. And that's part of our job because the desire is there. People are just waiting to hear from the Lord. The second question that this text helps me to understand is is this. I ask myself, is there something that I can do that disqualifies me from God's service? Sort of say it this way. Does any sin keep me from being used by God for his plans, his purposes, his mission? The answer is no. And I get that because I look at Aaron. Aaron is the leader of the greatest, most famous rebellion against God and his commands that's ever been written in literature. Everybody knows about the golden calf. Maybe. They used to, at least in the Western world, understand this great rebellion. And who led it? Aaron. Aaron. And all you have to do is look at the last few chapters. Chapter 28... Chapter 29, and bleeding into 30, which is what? The instruction that God was giving to Moses. And there's a name that you're going to see repeated, a personal name, over and over and over and over again. You know what that name is? Aaron. Do you think the omniscient creator of the universe knew what Aaron was up to while he was telling Moses to make Aaron my high priest? 
and Aaron's son, the great lineage of priests in Israel? God knew. God knew exactly what Aaron was doing, that he was giving in to the pressure. And yet, I mean, just read it. Aaron, Aaron, Aaron. God is picking Aaron, the great leader of this sin, to be the leader of his people spiritually. That, to me, is so fascinating. Because God knew. The whole time he knew. He's still angry with Aaron. We'll see that in a second. But God knew that it's not your perfection that makes you available for the service of God. But it's your repentance. And we see Aaron repent. Aaron knows that he's made a grave mistake. And it's going to cost people their lives And yet God uses him because he's willing to repent. You say, why would God do that? Why doesn't he pick a perfect person? There are no perfect people. In fact, Aaron might be the perfect person to be the high priest. Why? Because you know who's not going to be accidentally preaching a gospel of works, that your righteousness can save you, that perfectly following the law can save you. You know who's going to be really good at preaching that message? Preaching God's message of grace, that grace comes through repentance and faith, Aaron. Everybody knew that Aaron messed up and that God chose him. So he preaches, I'm sure, a great message of salvation by grace through repentance and faith. So actually Aaron's God's perfect vehicle. So that's all you got to do to be ready to be of service to God. Doesn't matter what you've done, how much you've sinned, how public it was, If you lead with repentance, God will and can use you just like he did Aaron. I'll tell you what, that makes me, that's good for my soul. You're not following a perfect man, but I hope I'm good at repentance. Okay. Like I said, lots of big topics here today. So they've broken the second commandment, led by Aaron, They've just heard this second commandment from God himself, which says, Thou shalt not make any carved images, any likeness of any created thing, and worship it as if it's God, or if it's me. See, I don't think they're actually worshiping the calf as some other God. I think they're saying, this is Yahweh who took us up out of the land. So they're just perverting it a little bit. They're just twisting it a little bit. They're still using Yahweh's name, but now they're representing him in a false way. God says, do not do that. And they break this command. And so we will get to observe, observe what idolatry looks like in the real world. It's totally understandable. That's the first thing I want to say. Like, we can understand this and even empathize with this, right? Moses is gone, and they don't really know. We have hindsight, so we can be like, he's coming back. We know he is. We've read about it. They don't know that. He's literally gone up into a mountain, and they haven't seen him For 10, 20, 30 days, uh, there's a very good chance he didn't make it. And and what the desert is hot. (laughs) They're like, I don't really want to live here forever. We need somebody to lead us. We need a God to lead us against our enemies. Moses is gone, the desert is hot. What are we gonna do? And this is what human beings do. This is idolatry observed. They get very practical. They get very practical. Okay, Aaron, he was always number two. He's Moses' brother. Let's just make him number one and have him make us an idol. So they get practical. That's, that's usually how idolatry starts. Second, 
they say, let's use what's worked in the past. So they look, what have we done in the past? Bull worship, particularly calf or young bull worship, was very common in the ancient Near East. We have like relics of it, artifacts, that show little statues and idols. This was very common, including most likely in Egypt. So they've seen this. Okay, a calf works. That seemed to work back home. Let's do that. So they get practical. They look at what's worked in the past. And so it results in this motto, which is something is better than nothing. Moses seems to be God. We, we haven't heard from God in many days. Something's better than nothing. I want to feel like we're doing something. I want to feel like we're making some progress. I want to feel like it. So, so we take it into our own hands. And this idea of taking it in our own hands is so clear in this text. Look at 32, chapter 32, verse 16. The text really draws this out. Chapter 32, verse 16 says this. So this is Moses returned. He came down from the mountain. And it says this. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So what do we have? Moses is literally, right? He's gone up and he's experienced heaven on earth. And he comes back with literally what? The handiwork of God. And he's carrying them down the mountain. Look just a few verses later. Look at verse 20. Moses, that's he, took the calf that they had made, who? The people had made with their hands, and he burned it in the fire and ground it into powder. So we have this idea, things made with God's hands, things made with human hands. And they're coming up against each other. So here's the lesson for us when it comes to idolatry. We as human beings tend strongly, it's like a tend feels very light, tend, almost, we almost can't control ourselves to fill the void of emptiness. So if we don't see something happening the way deep down we long and we know it should happen, our tendency is to take it upon ourselves. And that always leads to, when it comes to the worship of God, idolatry. So, when there's a void, when there's an emptiness, when Moses is gone, when Jesus hasn't come back yet, we say, like, we got to do it ourselves. Like, like, maybe we missed something. Maybe he told us to do it. Maybe we should build the kingdom ourselves. So whenever there's a void, that void desires to be filled. So someone, something, some idea will move in. And if it is not an idea from God, it will corrupt, it will take over, and it will seek to lead the people astray. Now we see this time and time again. You just look at the history of the world, the history of nations, the history of churches. When God is the thing removed from the equation, the vacuum that's left will always be filled by something new. Some new ideology. Some new way of bringing the kingdom, even good ideas of the kingdom to earth, with human hands. This happens in Christian nations and Secular nations, it happens when the true presence of God and his word are removed. Something fills it in. It happens to individuals, families, societies. It just happens. Study the revolutions of the world. Let's just get God out of the equation. Then we won't have any of the destructive nature that religion brought. Guess what comes in? Something usually far more deadly much more painful. 
a void is always filled. And that's a form of idolatry. So Moses is gone, it fills in, they worshiped the wrong thing, even though it was sort of good intentions. They're not at this point craving to go back to Egypt, they're just like, let's, let's do it here, let's bring some of the things we learned in Egypt here. And there's grave consequences, so let's look at the consequences. The first consequence is God is angry. God is angry. It's very clear when you read this, God is angry. And this isn't the first time that we've heard God is angry. Um, turn with me, or Ryan's going to put it up on the screen here. Romans chapter 1. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the Romans, who were also living in a time void of the worship of the one true God. And they too turned to the worship of other things, to idols, to ideas, etc. Romans 1, chapter, 18, or, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The truth about who? About God. Who he is, what he's like. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So we have these longings to worship something. In the things that have been made, we see God's power and character. So, Paul says, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish foolish hearts were what? Darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, so this is not just a problem for ancient Israel. This is a problem for the Roman Empire. And it's a problem for today. And it makes God angry. His wrath stirs up. And so it makes us ask this question about God's anger. Because what we see in this text is that Moses is going to talk God out of destroying his people. It's like, man, he's really angry. How, How do I understand this anger? Is this real anger or is it, is it faux anger? Like, is God just sort of pretending to be angry and he always kind of knows that he's going to relent? And he's, but he's just, like, what's going on? Like, is he bluffing? Or did Moses really change his mind? Did Moses change God's mind? And if so, can we change God's mind about things? This is an important, big question. Let me just make a quick comment. Because the anger of God here is really as we'll see, hard to deal with. I want to say this. God has true feeling. And what we see in the things that God says to Moses are an expression of how he really feels. He feels angry, just like we feel angry at people. He feels angry when people sin against him and rebel against him and worship him as if he's a cow. He gets angry. Feels it. But God never acts on his feelings. God always acts on his love. And when I say love, I don't mean a feeling. I mean his covenantal commitment to be for his people. So he feels all the things he says to Moses, but he acts on his love. Now what can we take from that? This is how we should be. 
We're created in the image of God with feelings and with opportunities to act. And so often we get this backward. We act on our feelings rather than upon our love. What if we were like God? Doesn't mean you don't feel angry. Doesn't mean you don't want to wipe people off the face of the earth. But you act upon covenantal love towards them. That's what it means to be like God. Which, of course, Jesus personifies and lives out so that we might see in the flesh. Giving his life up for the enemies that put him there. So God is angry, but he acts upon his love. So that doesn't mean that nothing bad happens here. God is a God willing to relent, willing to accept our repentance and give us another chance. But we do still see consequences. The first one we see is right here in verse 7. So look at 32, verse 7. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down to uh, go down for your people, Moses, whom you, Moses, brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, what have we heard God say so many times? These are my people who I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Moses is saying, those are your people, Moses. <laughs> He's distancing himself relationally. So our sin makes God have to take a step back. Let's read verses 8 to 10. God says this to Moses, they have turned aside quickly. Quickly they've turned aside. How quickly this has happened. Out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And, and, And God's saying, this is so obvious. This cow wasn't even there when they came out of Egypt. They're saying this is the God that brought us up. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. Moses is like, you're going to be the new Noah. We're going to start this whole thing over with you. That's how he feels. And, of course, what we'll see next is that Moses talks him out of that second. God, but you made a commitment to this people. And God says, yes, I know. But this is how I feel. I want to start over again, Moses. I want to start again with you. And Moses, in a very noble act, says, I'm going to stick with my people. And ultimately, God relents. But there are still consequences. Look at verse 11. Actually, let's, let's drop down here. Uh, to verse 15. Then Moses turned and went back down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. These tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God. I read that earlier. Engraved in the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, because remember, they're having a festival, as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, uh, I don't think it's the sound, I think it's the sound of shouting, I don't think it's the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of a cry of defeat, but I think it's the sound of singing that I hear. So as they're getting closer, they're starting to see what's going on. And as soon as they came near to the camp, they saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. Now Moses sees what God always saw. And Moses threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and he burned it in the fire and he ground it up. And he scattered it in the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Nobody teaches this part of the story. What? What is he doing? 
Well, we read in Deuteronomy when Moses recounts this event that what he actually did is he ground this, he puts in the fire the ashes and uh, the metals, and he grinds it up, and he throws it in the water source that's coming out of the mountain near where they're encamped. So this isn't like he's walking around with a bowl and he's saying, (laughs) drink, drink. But he puts it into the water source so that all the people would drink it and realize they probably had really bad indigestion, which is one of the consequences here. But this is no joke because this idol Moses is making a mockery of. He's saying, this is the God that you're worshiping that I can so easily throw into the fire, grind up, put into your water source. You'll drink it, and it will come out the other side as something else. That's what you're worshiping? That's your God? But it's his grace to help them see how foolish their minds have been. Just a little bit of absence creates darkness in the mind, and, they, and something this silly that they would worship as if it were Yahweh. Look at verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. He's speaking of actually Moses' anger there. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods, and, we shall go be- and th- that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So he's recounting, This is what happened. So I said to them, Let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) We should be laughing at this point. He's like, I don't know what happened. I just threw the gold in the fire, and it just came out. How often we do that with our idolatry. I couldn't help it. It just happened. I don't know. We had a couple drinks. Both good-looking people. It just happened. I can't be blamed for this. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Who is on Yahweh's side? He draws a line in the sand. Who's with Yahweh? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he stood, and he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, Each each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon them upon you this day. Idolatry leads to people dying. Now this is a hard passage. What's going on here? It seems to be what's going on here. And this can be just hard to read on his face. But it seems most, I mean, there's something systematic here about what he tells the Levites to do. To go to and fro, from gate to gate. So there's a systematic nature, and, and it seems what's probably happening here is they're, going, they're not just killing randomly. They're going to each tent, and they're saying, choose today whom you will serve. Are you with Yahweh, or are you with the worship of the golden calf? God's giving them a chance to repent, to turn from their false worship, and to now worship him again. And yet, there are people 
who don't like this uncontrollable nature of Yahweh, and they choose, we are with golden calf worship. And those people, those men lost their lives. So that seems harsh. Well, first let me say, this isn't a timeless prescript. God is not telling the people of God to do this. But in this moment, in this place, this is how serious it was to remove idolatry out of the encampment. Why? If they didn't do that, perhaps the message of God and who he actually is would be lost for the ages and you or I wouldn't be sitting here receiving his grace, understanding what he's done because the message has been distorted. It's been corrupted like that water. And God says it's so important, not just for your people and your families, but for the family sitting at Sedaris Church that my message does not become corrupted and so I'm willing even to take the life of those that refuse to repent. We're talking about eternal destiny here, as we'll see in a second. This is serious business, idolatry. Lying about who God is. Confusing people about who God is. This is serious business enough that God's willing to slay 3,000 of the men that he rescued out of Egypt. Can't shy away from it. Look at verse 32, or sorry, verse 30 says this, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if you will not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. Wow. Moses says, I'll give myself in that place. But look what the Lord says. Yahweh said to him, Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about that I have spoken to you, the promised land. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. So very quickly, one of the consequences is God, in his discipline, brings a plague or pestilence, a sickness upon them. Not, we, it doesn't seem like this maybe killed anybody, but to remind them, this is a serious thing you've done, even those who have repented. The discipline of the Lord is his love. So it's one of the consequences. But the consequence I want to end with and focus on here is this notion of the book and the name being blotted out of the book. This is intense. Moses gets it. Now, in ancient Near East, people would keep records of everybody that lived in their community, like a census, and it was called the Book of Life. And what Moses is saying, God, I know you also have a Book of Life, those people who dwell in your kingdom. And Moses is saying, I'm willing to have my name blotted out so that the names of my countrymen might remain. It's a profound act of love. But God says, no, that's my book, Moses. Look what he says. My book, verse 33. And I will blot out everyone who has sinned against me. The book of life is a theme that comes up again and again and again in the Bible. You see it in the New Testament a ton. And in the book of Revelations, the last book of the Bible, you see it six times, this book of life. 
This is the book of eternal life. And God says, your sin will result in you being blotted out from the book of life. Let no one forget that. Now God says here, I'll defer the blotting out, but I will not forget. I will not forget, he says. And this, at, at this point, we should be like panicking. What? Because what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Meaning all have had their name blotted out of the book of life. And God's deferring that punishment. We're living in the forgotten middle. He's letting us live. But yet he said, I will not forget. What could possibly cure us of this corruption of idolatry or any sin? And the answer we come to, we got to keep reading this book. You'll see Israel fall short again and again and again that nothing that they can do can ever get them back to where they once were. It's like, it's like a comedy of errors that they just keep falling short until we come to the New Testament and the arrival of Jesus Christ. And what we see is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus did in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, is the only thing that God says can cure you of the blotting out that God promises right here. I mean, look at Moses. He's offering himself. What a noble act. Take me instead of my people. And God says, insufficient funds. Why? call this the brave heart approach. Why doesn't this work? Because Moses is a mere mortal. Jesus Christ is the God-man. God in the flesh. So be careful to ever, if you ever hear anybody distort the person of Jesus as just a good human prophet, then he's just like Moses and offered himself up. And God says insufficient funds. But because Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, that's why the incarnation is such an important part of the gospel message. He becomes the only suitable substitute to atone for the sins of people, to atone for the sins of idolaters. And all of us are idolaters. And so we see in this passage, blood must be shed. The 3,000 that died is an example of what should and will happen to all of those who worship God falsely. Blood must be shed, but only the blood of a perfect, completely righteous substitute who also is God and man can pay or cancel the debt that God refers to right here about idolatry. It's the only thing. So a little illustration to help you understand this. So um, my, my, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law, they're moving, and they've got a beautiful house in uh, Woodenville. They've done so much work to it, it's, it's beautiful. And I heard they were moving. I was like, listen, I'll buy your house, 400 k on the spot, take it or leave it. <laughs> and they go, um, it'll cost you about three times that much money. And I said, take it or leave it. Tried to trick them into it with a little pressure sales. Didn't work. So God isn't saying to Moses, Moses, you're just not quite enough. We need three of you. If we just had three of you, Moses, then we got a deal. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no amount of Moseses giving their life for other people will do the trick. It's a quality issue, not a quantity. So, it, um, so, so it, in, in the terms of Moses' offer, um, my offer to my brother-in-law would have sounded like this to God. It would have been like me offering to my brother-in-law one of my extra-large 
intramural championship t-shirts from the University of Washington. Prize possession of mine. Champion. Intramural, though. Say, Jeff, I'll give you this if you give me your house. And Jeff looks at me and he says, dude, I played four years of Letterman soccer at the University of Washington. I have no need for your intramural championship. He's saying, it, it doesn't even compute to me that that would be anywhere near, right? Is it so absurd, this idea? I want this to feel so absurd. And the fact that Jeff actually played Pac-12 soccer makes it even more absurd that he would want my intramural championship shirt, right? That's what it feels like to God. It's incompatible. It's like, it's like putting Canadian quarters in a U.S. vending machine. It just seems like it would work, and then nothing happens. And then you get mad because you're like, that's like 20 cents, It just doesn't compute because the quality of the thing is so different. So Moses, insufficient. Only the divine God-man, Jesus Christ, giving his life will do the work of atoning for the sin of idolatry. So I want to give you a a mental picture. I I just came up with this this week. I call it uh, the allegory of the three inks. Okay? This is a dream, a vision. It's not... Um, it's not true. I'm not saying this is how it works. So I I just don't want you to miss that. Uh, So God says, everyone who sins against me will have their name blotted out, which makes us say, oh my gosh, my name is probably blotted out of the book of life. That's what you should be saying. What can I do? How can... So picture somebody sitting there and the book of life is before them and they've got three inks to choose from and they're like, I need to rewrite my name back in this book. First ink. This is the ink of niceness. I'm going to be a nice, good person. I'm going to do good works. I'm going to care for people. I'm going to be helpful. I'm going to be a morally stellar person. You take that ink and you write your name. Guess what happens next time you fall short? Blots out. Okay, let me try new ink. Second ink. This is the ink of religiosity. I'm going to be devout. I'm never going to miss church. I'm going to give to the church. I'm going to do everything that I know that I'm supposed to do that this book says as far as doing the right worshiping things. So I take that and I write my name. Great, I'm back in the book. As soon as I sin, blot it out. It's like, what do I do? The third ink. This ink is literally the blood of Jesus Christ. And if I dip my pen in that ink, and I write my name in the blood of Jesus in the book. Guess what happens? Because you will sin. You will be idolatrous. You will fall short of God's command. When God goes to blot that out, it can't be erased. It can't be erased. It's permanent. Why is that? It's permanent because... God can't cancel himself. That's his blood. God can't deny himself. That's his blood. God can't erase what Jesus has done because he did it. It's permanent. And so the choice you have in your life when you hear about the blotting out from the book of life is how could I possibly rewrite my name? And there's one thing that will last, and that's writing your name in the blood of Jesus. That's the decision we all have to make. Which ink are we going to choose? Because we feel like we need to do something. 
And Jesus has given us away through his blood. So that's the issue of idolatry. And we all do it. And it's serious. And the consequences are grim. And they have eternal effect. But through Jesus' blood, he's given us away. But only through his blood. Now you say, but that seems like there's not much I can do. I was like, Jesus did that. Yeah. Is there anything I need to think about in this passage? Well, yeah. Just like Israel, you're having to do some waiting. Just like Moses went up the mountain and Israel had to wait, Jesus ascended and you're having to wait. If you go to the book of Acts, which is the first book after the Gospels, after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the book of Acts now recounts the beginning of the church and the Jesus movement after Jesus has ascended. You can read about this. Jesus took his disciples up to a mountain. And he, after 40 days of being with them, he said, listen, I'm going to have to go and ascend to the heavenly mountain. But I'll come back, but I must go now. And they're thinking, well, this, I don't understand this plan, but okay. And he ascends into heaven, and they sit there looking. And two angels show up and they say, what are you looking at? Jesus went to heaven, but he'll come back in the exact same way he came down. Same path. But you must wait. Now Jesus also says at the Last Supper that when he goes, he's going to go and prepare a place for you. So he's going to be doing some really loving, important work, but you're not going to get to see it until I come back. You see the parallels? Here's the problem. The disciples thought that Jesus meant, just like Moses, maybe it'll be like a month. A month went by. No Jesus. A year went by. No Jesus. Ten years. No Jesus. All of them die. They never get to see Jesus. Even though they were expecting. Guess what? 2,000 years later, he still hasn't come back physically. <sighs> this is hard. This is so hard. Why, why do we have to keep waiting? This desert is hot. <laughs> Life is hard. Maybe I'll just make some upgrades to the way I worship. Maybe I'll just make some upgrades to the things Jesus taught. Maybe I'll just make some upgrades to the commandments. Make things a little bit more tangible, easy, get our hands on it. Because waiting is hard. Jesus says, don't. Keep waiting. You say, how can I wait? This is impossible. And the church has struggled. And the church has become idolatrous. In many ways and many times. Because the waiting is hard. You say, so how could I possibly wait with any kind of confidence at this point? It's been 2,000 years. Do we have anything that Israel did not have? Because we're having to wait longer. Do we have anything that they did not have? And the answer is yes. We have physical proof that Jesus rose from the dead. We have the resurrection. Which is to say that the same man that said, I'm going away... And I'm going to prepare a pace for you, and then I'm going to come, I'm going to bring you to myself, into my kingdom, and I'm going to give you all the things that I've been thinking about you for the last 2,000 years. I'm going to give them to you. This man that we're waiting for that said that, he's also the man who said to his disciples, I'm going to go die on a cross for your sin, and then in th three days I'm going to raise from the dead. And he actually did it. Israel didn't have that. We have that. Which is why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it all hinges on the resurrection. 
if we've got the resurrection, if we believe the resurrection, then we can trust every single promise that God has given to us. Every promise that Jesus has made, including that he's coming back down that mountain, we can trust it and cling to it and hope in it because we know that he's risen. And the apostle Paul had seen the risen Jesus, so he knew that it was true. So even though Paul thought Jesus would return in his lifetime, he was okay that he didn't. He was okay with that because he knew that the resurrection was true and that God's timing is not his so that he could patiently wait and fulfill what God has done. That's the promise. So how do we avoid this pitfall of idolatry? Three things. Because it's totally understandable that this is hard for you to wait. (laughs) It's hard for me to wait. So what are the three things that I can do? How do I become a I can't wait person? Instead of a, I can't wait, person. Number one, remember the promises that Jesus made. We've been through those. That he'll put every, that what he's doing right now, simultaneously to what we're experiencing, he's putting every enemy under his feet. That's what he says he's doing. He's also promised that he would send his spirit to be with us, which he's done. So we don't wait for his, we wait for his physical return, but not his spirit. But we have his presence with us spiritually, and then we remember the promise that he's preparing a place for us. And then we remember the resurrection of Jesus. We think about the resurrection. We sing about the resurrection. We proclaim the resurrection. We are people of the resurrection. And then the third thing is, as I said, we remember the spiritual presence of Jesus is with us even now. With the Holy Spirit. So when the, those disciples said, Jesus, go up, they had to wait their whole lives to see him physically return. But about you know, five to seven days later is the day of Pentecost where the Spirit of God descended and they began to speak in other languages and it was clear that God was with them, that the spiritual presence of Christ was with them in a unique way. Ben talked about that last week. That's why we become the, the presence of Jesus now, which is why gathering together is so important because God says we're two or more gathered I am there in a very special way. So those three reminders help us to wait and not fall into idolatry.